Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark. We welcome everybody here. A light crowd today. I suspect we have many logged on online from their lake houses this Labor Day weekend. So we welcome you as well, and we hope that uh, you are enjoying your weekend as well. Please continue to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters that we now know through media reports have been left behind in Afghanistan. We have pastors, missionaries, and their families. They're often reaching out how they can via somewhat cryptic text messages asking for prayer and for help. And one such message we received just two days ago by a partner in ministry that has active pastors in the area. Now I'll read you what they received. Status update. Our guys did not get out. They are in real danger. I am devastated. They are in a hellish nightmare right now. I prayed with them last night and wept as I thanked them for their lives and for their faith. Working on options to get them out now, but ultimately my hope, their hope, is in the Lord. They are desperate right now and have communicated directly with me that the Taliban are looking for them. I can't believe any of this is real. Lord, have mercy. Pray for them in the days ahead. They are hiding. Pray for the Lord to make a way. When we receive prayer requests like this, our hearts break. And it should cause us to stop what we are doing and pray. But there's much more to see from such difficult messages like these. I'm sure everyone in here knows a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And most know at a minimum that King Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king. And some think even one of the greatest villains in all of Scripture. And indeed, he was wicked. He was an evil king who propagated many atrocities. I won't ask you to turn there. Let's put it up on the screen. But I'd like us to look to the writings of the weeping prophet to Jeremiah. Chapter 27, beginning at verse 5. The Lord Yahweh speaks here. He says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever seems right to me. Now stop there for a moment. The Lord speaks here and what does he say? He says, I'm God. It's my world. I made the earth and I'll do with it whatever I want. I will give dominion of it to whomever I want. I'm God. And saints, as I read this, I had to ask, is this the God most Christians in America serve? The one who looks down and says, mine. It's all mine and I will do with it. As I please, I will raise up whom I will. I will put down whom I will. I will save whom I will. We don't like that God. That God sounds mean. He sounds unloving and certainly intolerant. Well, long before cancel culture took hold in our culture, many Christians had canceled this view of God out of their heart and mind. A God who's actually God, meaning he is completely sovereign over the events of the world. Well, it's about to get a whole lot more uncomfortable if you do not embrace the theology of a God who is sovereign. Look at verse 6 from Jeremiah. Now I have given all these lands into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Did God just call one of the most wicked kings in history my servant? He sure did. But what does that mean? Does that mean that King Nebuchadnezzar was actually a, a covert follower of Yahweh? That he was actually a lover of God? No, that's not what that means. That means that God is using King Nebuchadnezzar for his purposes. As King Nebuchadnezzar is committing evil, as he's spouting blasphemy, God is using that for his higher purposes. God has made King Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And the wicked king doesn't even know it. Jeremiah goes back to this again in chapter 43, verse 10. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. That's who we're here today worshiping. That's who you've come to sing to. The God of Israel. Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will set his throne above these stones that I've hidden. And I will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence. To captivity those who are doomed to captivity. And to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt. And he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace. Do you see this, beloved? Is this the God you serve, the one who rules in such a way? Is the God you serve one who raised up a wicked group like the Taliban for his purposes? If not, you serve a different God than the one revealed in Scripture. Is your God one just sitting by in the pew, just as vexed about the happenings in Afghanistan as you are? then you serve a different God than the one revealed in Scripture. Not only is He in control of it, but He actually raised up the wicked one to do it and made them His servant. Is that your God? I'm here to tell you right now, for many Americans in evangelicalism, this is not their God. If we do not understand the totality of God's interaction with His creation in His world, we're not going to see tragedies like Afghanistan rightly. We're not going to make correct sense of the headlines. Saints, you will fail to even understand your own salvation. Our God reigns. He reigns over it all. Not a blade of grass blew to the left or to the right without His knowledge and without His permission. All those dear, precious saints that watched as the last Air Force plane lifted off from Kabul. They're right here in his hands. The father sees them just like this. Does that God match our theology? Or perhaps does it match the theology of our head, but not our life? Do we live that way? Saints, we have shared time and time again that what God is doing, he's doing for his church. He's doing for his church. And if the result of the Taliban taking over and committing atrocities and violence against Christians is what it took for a believer here this morning to see God as He is, then we must praise Him for that. And if processing through tragedy, like Christians being murdered and hunted like animals, finally frames God in our mind as Scripture frames Him, 
then we must, through all the pain, praise God for that. This is a frightening time to live with a small God theology. Let me introduce you to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. To the Alpha and the Omega. To the one who chose you from eternity past for salvation. And that reigns over it all. You don't know him like that. The coming years will tear at your faith and leave you dry. We must see God as scripture shows him to be. Not as we want him to be. Not what feels right to us. That doesn't violate our sensibilities, but as he is. What is knocking at the door of our society, of our schools, of our government, at our church doors. If we do not bring a proper theology of God to these times, that is a faith waiting to be burned away with the chaff. It will not survive because it cannot. It has nothing upon which to stand. He is the ruler of nations. He sees the end from the beginning. Nothing takes him by surprise. He never sleeps nor slumbers. The earth is his footstool. He takes even the most wicked and makes them his servant. Is that your God? Grab hold of this, saints, and you will soar in your faith when those around you are destitute and wandering, asking, where is God? How could God let this happen? Doesn't he see this wickedness and this evil? And great joy can fill your heart because you know the answer. You know who he is. Not as we imagine him to be or how we wish he was, but how scripture reveals that he is. And those who come to him must come to him as he is. God does not desire to just teach his church corporately as a body through these times. But saints, he has something to teach us individually. God has something to teach us specifically and individually as a result of these terrors such as we see in Afghanistan. And one possibility is seeing God as Scripture shows Him to be, not as we've fashioned Him to be in our minds. So please continue to pray for the brothers and sisters over there and be on the lookout for what God is teaching us through this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes. Well, what time? What a time we had last week concluding our two-part series of Jesus captivating thousands by not only healing and teaching them, but by performing a creative and a continual miracle in the feeding of the 25,000. Jesus performed a miracle of perfect precision, not only feeding all till they were full, but making sure that all the disciples had a basket full to collect for themselves. Every piece divinely planned. And while we were tempted to make this telling about the great crowds, we know that Jesus has actually turned his attention away from the public preaching and teaching and is indeed now pouring into his disciples. He's, and indeed, that is just what he's doing in this telling. He's preparing them for what lies ahead. And we saw in this field today, last week, Jesus teaching his disciples complete dependency on him. What they had to offer in their baskets as they approached these groups of 50 and 100 that are sitting in rows. What they had to offer did not reside in them. No money could buy it. No effort could produce it and no merit could warrant it. All they had to bring to the table is what they were given from the very hand of God. And what we did not see in Mark's telling was the crowd's reaction to what Jesus did, to the miracle that he performed. 
Someone taught the crowd with great power, didn't they? They spoke like no man ever spoke before. And he can heal our bodies. And now he fed us from nothing. All hail King Jesus. They wanted to grab him right there and throw a crown on him. And we see in John's telling that they wanted to force him to be their king. And that kingly fervor of the crowd is exactly where our text jumps off from today. A telling that is one of the most dramatic in all of Scripture. With that, let's begin with our text. Mark 6, 45-52. And immediately, Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and ahead of Him to the other side to Bethsaida, while He Himself was sending the crowd away. And after bidding them farewell, He left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he was intending to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly amazed for they had not gained any insight from the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Let's pray. Father, this text is Amazing and challenging and difficult and convicting all in one. Lord, I help, I ask that you help this very fallible preacher to bring your word. Lord, we ask that you would open it for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine it for us. Teach us what you would have to know from this text. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, down where we used to live in Fisherville, Kentucky, there is a elevated train track. And it's probably about 50 to 75 feet off the ground. And it runs from hilltop to hilltop. And sadly, teenagers, they made a dare game out of this track, trying to outrun the train at a certain point. And many tragically lost their lives as they could not outrun the train, and the train forced them out over the side. It's awful, but this reminded me of a similar illustration from Stevenson about a man who was walking along a railroad track on a very dark night when he came to a bridge, just like our one in Fisherville. And he had gotten about halfway across when he heard a train whistle up ahead. And he quickened his pace, but he could see the light of the oncoming locomotive approaching. And with nowhere else to turn, he got down and he lowered himself over the side, hanging onto the trestle as the train thundered past above him. However, after the train had passed, he found that he didn't have the upper body strength to pull himself back up. And he cried out for help, but there was no answer. And that man hung there all night, terrified that he might slip and fall into the yawning abyss below. Yet as day broke and there was just enough light to see, he looked down to see a drop of only six inches. The light gave him the correct perspective. As fearful as we are, we often see a yawning abyss below us. Yet if we saw our situation from God's perspective, 
it was a six-inch drop all along. And that six-inch drop doesn't symbolize the severity of our problem. It has nothing to do with the problem and everything to do with the God we serve. The greatest problem you can think of, however severe, is just a six-inch drop. Not because the problem is not severe, but because our God is far bigger and far more powerful than we can grasp. And we're going to see that today with our disciples. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be exhausted. For the second time in our Gospels, out on this lake, the storm threatens to take their lives, only to have what appears to be a ghost coming toward their boat. In other words, the disciples are hanging on for dear life. They're being assaulted both in mind and body. The abyss is below them in this moment. When in fact, the drop was only six inches all along. So let's dive into our first verse. Verse 45. And immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. Well, the verse almost seems naked without Mark's trademark word, immediately, which we begin with. But the great thing about Mark and his writing is he, he doesn't use the word just for the sake of, of literary pace. It has a purpose of urgency, which is exactly what we see here. What is Jesus immediately doing here with great intensity in the word? What is happening to cause this reaction from Jesus that made them, see that word, made them get into the boat? We'll rotate the diamond to John. No need to turn there. What does it tell us the crowd was doing? Well, John 6, verse 17 tells us exactly. So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So, but what exactly is the danger to the disciples here? They're being dispatched by Jesus. He made them get into the boat as if they're in some sort of danger, aren't they? Go, go now, get out of here. Was the crowd angry or violent? Well, no, except for wanting to force Jesus to be king. So what gives? Well, if you'll recall, rural Galilee was ground zero for the zealot movement. Remember, we even had Simon the zealot. These were the militia. They wanted to overthrow the Romans. And rural Galilee, this was their turf. Like every movie that has a subtext or, or a secondary plot line running through it the entire time, so does this story. And knowing this will color so much of what we see here. This is why we have such a push here to make Jesus king. This entire scene where Jesus feeds the 25,000 is positively pulsating with messianic fervor. In Jesus, the zealots found their guerrilla leader. The running along the shoreline, as we saw last week, of the people growing and gathering suggests a huge populous undercurrent. And this was before Jesus fed and healed them. Just imagine the fervor after. We need to understand the mindset of the crowd if Jesus' command to the disciples is going to make any sense. So again, if the crowd is not violent, what's the danger to the disciples? Why the urgency to leave? Why make them get into the boat? Something much more dangerous than violence lurks. Fame. Destroyer of men and women. We have a revolution brewing here in the countryside. 
Jesus knew that the disciples were ripe to be taken up in this revolutionary fervor. In fact, the Greek verb here tells us that the disciples were reluctant to leave. All the disciples were from this area. One of the disciples was actually labeled a what? A zealot. They wanted to bask in this moment of glory. Their Messiah, their rabbi, their teacher was finally getting his due from the crowds. I mean, is this it? Is this happening? The military Messiah? Is he finally here? Let's see where this goes. The disciples were often just as deceived as the crowds were about the nature of Jesus' kingdom, weren't they? And in fact, even up until the passion narrative, before Jesus' death, the disciples are still saying things that tell us they still don't get it. They still think Jesus is the military Messiah. And this tells us why Jesus, the good shepherd, needs to get his disciples out of this militia rally that's forming in this field. Even though we know that the disciples were loving it and wanting to stay, R.T. France, he writes, quote, Jesus packs the disciples off in a hurry to get them away from this contagious atmosphere. Close quote. These 12 were still so immature in their faith. Even after all they had seen, they could easily be swept up in the guerrilla revolution that was being pushed. That's the reason they need to go. This is not what I'm about. This is not why I came. You cannot stay and bask in this rhetoric. You need to go. Well, back to our text. Where does Jesus send them? Get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, now, hang on a minute. I can see some questions brewing in some of our A students in here. I thought they were in Bethsaida. Now it says get in the boat and go over to the other side. To Bethsaida. What gives? We have a mistake in scripture here, Pastor? A contradiction? Not at all. First, we need to understand that the word Bethsaida really just means fish house. It means fish village. There were actually a few of these that dotted the Galilee landscape, as you can imagine. Now, if we look at John's telling, we know that the destination Jesus was sending them to was Capernaum. Well, located right by Capernaum was a village known as Bethsaida, Galilee. The place where Jesus fed the 25,000 was known as Bethsaida, Julius. So no contradiction here. You just had more than one village that was a fishing village. But yet if we keep digging here, we find in this text a clue of what Jesus is about to do. And sadly, the English is no good here. The text says, to the other side to Bethesda. But that's not what the Greek proposition says here. The word is pros, which means, which doesn't mean to, as in go to Bethesda. Pros means go toward Bethesda, Bethsaida. It means start heading that direction. Isn't that interesting? A little clue about what Jesus knows is about to happen. You head that direction. I'll meet up with you in a bit. And what is Jesus doing in our text while he himself was sending the crowd away? He says, thank you very much. You're very kind, but I'm not that kind of king. Jesus had other motivations as well, as we'll see here in verse 46. And after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. 
Well, it's been often said that the secret to Jesus' public power was his private prayer. I'll say that again. The secret to Jesus' public power was his private prayer. We forget in the fervor of the miracle that the disciples and Je- that in the fervor of this miracles that the disciples and Jesus they were exhausted before this day kicked off. Remember that? This has only compounded that now. And Jesus needs to get alone with the Father. There's so much we could glean here about Jesus and his prayer life. That's a sermon unto itself. But a few things to notice here. Jesus' difficult day. His hard day, his draining day did not drive Jesus from prayer. It drove him to prayer. Imagine your most exhausting day at work. You're so tired when you get home, you can't see straight. That night, did your prayer level go up or down? I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts it went down. Jesus shows us the opposite here. His exhaustion drove him toward prayer, not away from it. What is interesting as we look at the instances of Jesus personally praying in the Gospels, there's a few things that always are hallmarks that define these times. It's usually at night. It's usually isolated. His disciples are not there. And something has usually just happened that showed the disciples failing to understand Jesus' mission. Always. Which you have to dig to find, but we that's exactly what happened with the disciples here today. They were caving and enjoying the militia train that the crowd was on. They were susceptible to it. Theologian and commentator James Edwards, he writes of Jesus' prayer time that he faced a formative decision or crisis. Following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus reaffirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than a freedom fighter against Rome. Close quote. And think about it, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the same way, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Satan promised him the kingdoms of the world if he would just worship him. Satan wasn't wasting temptations. He used what he thought would work. Lay down your path to the cross, Jesus. That only ends in blood. Pick up what is rightfully yours as God's son. You can have it all. This crowd was tempting Jesus with the same thing. Jesus' prayer time is focusing him on the mission. It's focusing Jesus on what lies ahead. No doubt praying for his disciples that their faith would grow and that it would not fail them. That prayer would be much needed because we are about to see whether faith or fear controls the hearts of the disciples. A testing is coming in only a few short hours. Our story continues with verse 47. Verse 47. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Well, when we talk about evening times here, remember who Mark is writing to, who his audience is. He is writing primarily to a Roman audience. He's writing to Romans. So this time vernacular is using the Roman system of four watches of the night instead of the usual Jewish three watches of the night. This evening word here would be the second watch of the night. So we know that this is just past 6 p.m. or so. The sun had essentially set or was just about to set. It's right in that zone. And we see that the disciples had made it to the middle of the sea. 
So for the first 30 minutes to an hour of their rowing, they're making decent progress. That tells us the storm had not yet taken. To give you some context, that's going to help you for our next scene. Strong, experienced fishermen under normal conditions could make the trip from Bethsaida Julius to Bethsaida Galilee in about an hour and a half, maybe two hours, if they're being leisurely about it. And you're going to need that context because as we approach the crescendo of our text, verse 48, buckle up for this, verse 48, and seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea and he was intending to pass by them. Well, instead of dissecting this in order, I'm actually going to jump to the middle of the verse because this is, gives us our context. Excuse me. When is this verse taking place? It says the fourth watch of the night. What time scale are we using? We're using the Roman. So what time is this fourth watch of the night? This is three to six a.m. Now back to the beginning of the verse. And seeing them straining at the oars. Stop there, so much to see. First off, let's not miss the miracle that's floating right here on the surface for us to scoop up as a freebie. It's, let's call it four o'clock in the morning. It's pitch black. There is a storm. There is wind. They're in the middle of the sea. And what are the first three words of our verse? And seeing them. And seeing them. You go out in a pitch black night in a storm with no lights on, no electricity, and go tell me what you can see that's over two miles away. Either high-powered night vision goggles were an early invention, or you had better be God to pull off that kind of sight. And indeed, the psalmist declares, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The darkest night, the biggest storm, he saw them. When every physical circumstance says it is impossible to see me, he saw them. Lay hold of that, saints. Tuck it away in your spirit. Now it says they were straining at the oars. This word for straining is where we actually get the word torture from. They were agonizing. But we need to take in the totality of the scene here. What time is it? 3 to 6 a.m. So let's just call it 4.30. Let's split the difference. What time did they leave the shore? About 5 p.m. These disciples had been rowing with agonizing force as if being tortured for almost 11 hours in the dark when their bodies wanted to be sleeping. You would have had waves and spray filling the boat. 11 hours of intensively working like that. The acid is building in your muscles. They're spasming at this point. This is the edge of physical endurance for a person who wasn't already exhausted. So just imagine that scene in the boat. It says, for the wind was against them. Well, that is putting it very mildly. Remember normal travel time, an hour and a half. Eleven hours later. They're about halfway there. Eleven hours later. Now we go into great detail about the nature of storms on the Sea of Galilee in our message titled, When Waves Are Big and God is Small. You can go to sermonaudio.com if you want to listen to that. If you want to go into more depth. 
But suffice to say that these storms on the Sea of Galilee arose suddenly and violently due to the topography in the region. Steep, cliff, steep cliffs, high cliffs that would accelerate this cool air down the mountain and it slams into the warm air of the sea and it gets very violent, very fast. But what's interesting here, and many may not know about my, my background as a, a meteorologist in a former life, but storms like these that are, are rapid and they're violent they tend to dissipate sooner rather than later as well. Now, I'm not an expert on, on Galilee wind patterns for this wind intensity and direction to persist for 11 hours, I would have to think is exceedingly rare. But wouldn't that just make sense? Jesus has a purpose for this weather, a divine plan for this entire scene. Is God in the weather department? Yes. And that seems to shock people when you suggest such a thing. Tornadoes, hurricanes, his world, his department, all created things, all things seen and unseen, his department, it's all his. Well, back to our text. Our first miracle is that Jesus sees them. He sees them. And two application points we get from that are one, that he sees them when it's impossible for them to see him. And two, he doesn't save them. He doesn't save them. He was on, a sh on the shore for a number of hours doing what? Watching them struggle. He's watching them fight it out. As earlier in Mark, Jesus could have commanded what? Peace be still. But he didn't. He let this group of men struggle. And struggle till they had nary an ounce of strength. He let them undergo torture at the hands of the wind and the waves. Saints, the struggle is where Christians are made. The fight is where belief and faith take hold. Strain at the oars and know me better. Take heart. This is my wind and these are my waves. They are my servant. Back to our text. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Couldn't we just stop there? <laughs> walking on the sea. 4.30 in the morning. Creator God alters the molecules of the very water below Him and walks upon the water as if it were land. I thought about how to encapsulate this scene, to, to take in the totality of it, and words failed except to consider how many things must be true in order for this event to happen. How many things must be true? All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. That's our frame of reference as we witness this creative miracle. The fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. The boat was not visible from the shore, but he's God. He sees all. He walks right to them. And need it be said, but water cannot be walked upon. But when you're God, water is what you say it is. Its molecular properties are what you say they are. Everything obeys him because it was made by him and through him. Get that in our spirit, saints. Back to our text. 
and he was intending to pass by them. Of course, the English. It's no good here. It's no good. It's quite misleading. A better rendering of this says he desired to come alongside them, which is, of course, what he did. And what is the reaction of our depleted and our disoriented, our disheveled disciples? Verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost and cried out. Again, our caution about casting stones at the disciples here from our glass houses. What would you think it was? What would you think it was? People don't walk on water. Put yourself in that boat. Imagine seeing this. We have the benefit of hindsight. We all know this story. They had no hindsight. They would have been terrified. I would have been terrified myself. And indeed they were. Verse 50, what does it say? For they all saw him and were terrified, just like you and I would have been. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. This is this terror is a fear on top of fear. They were already thinking they could die from this storm. The waves were awful. Now, the deepest part of the Sea of Galilee is no more than 200 feet, making this a shallow lake. Well, the wind effects on a shallow lake are much worse than on a deep body of water. It's tumultuous. It sprays and it fills your boat. There was 11 hours of this. And when their bodies were at their limit, when their bodies wants to do nothing but give up, here comes someone walking on the water coming toward you. The storm was still bad enough that Jesus had gotten within speaking distance of the boat before they saw him. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, what? Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, my thinking here, saints, as I'm reading this is nice to see you. It would have been even nicer about 10 hours ago. You also could have come at any time. You could have come sooner. But here now at four in the morning, you had been here. You could have saved us some immense pain, but you didn't. You let it happen. But saints, let us be reminded. Did Jesus leave the disciples during this time with no tangible reminder of his power, of his love and of his faithfulness? What was in the boat with them the entire time? You ever think about how many calories you burn rowing furiously for 11 hours? A lot. Well, whatever, having just left Bethsaida, Julius, whatever were they eating to replenish, I wonder? How about some bread? Perhaps 12 baskets full of bread. Can we just soak that in for a moment? His promises... The symbol of his power never left them. The bread was right there. Whatever you've suffered or are suffering, if you are in Christ, there is bread in your boat. There is a tangible reminder in your life somewhere of the sovereign God you serve. And during the entire storm, the bread was there the entire time. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Take courage It is I. Do not be afraid. Be brave, Jesus said. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Why? 
On what basis do I not have to fear? On what basis do you not have to fear? It is I. But here, you know I'm not a fan of the English, but here the English makes a grave misstep. This is not, it is I. This says, I am. I am, says take courage and do not be afraid. The voice in the burning bush who told Moses to get his people out of Egypt now walks on the water. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob is beside your boat. But it gets better than that, beloved. The I am does not merely come alongside the boat. It doesn't merely come alongside it. Verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped. And they were utterly amazed. Take courage. Do not be afraid. I am is in the boat with you. The I am can dwell with sinners. He can be in fellowship with us who had been separated from him by our sin, in which, in this case, which is fear. Namely, nearly the same miracle as the calming of the storm has been performed in their midst yet again, twice. Now, one thing we need to mention, though we don't dive into it, the other Gospels tell us of a miraculous event that happened at this point. Now, this is the event where Peter went out walking on the water to Jesus. Remember that? Well, it seems like a pretty big deal, doesn't it? Why would Mark not mention? Why would he skip such a huge event like Peter walking out on the water to Jesus? Well, the answer is quite simple, really, if we consider it. What source did Mark use to write his gospel? They were five sermons delivered in Rome by whom? By Peter. The reason that this part of the story is not in here is that Peter did not wish to cast a spotlight on himself. He wanted the focus to remain where it should, on Jesus. Had Peter mentioned this to a live crowd in a sermon in Rome, they would have been more enamored and more desperate to touch someone who walked on water himself. Peter desired the focus to be where it should be, on our Savior. That's the reason this amazing part of the story is missing from Mark. But back to our text. Why fear? Why did they fear? Why did the quiet, peaceful state of a trusting heart not permeate the disciples on this stormy 4 a.m. boat? Verse 52, as we begin to close. For they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Who else is fascinated by this? But this is a feature of Mark's gospel. You know, he's never interested in framing the disciples in a positive light. And in fact, here, the words he uses for harden are usually words that are reserved for outsiders and for opponents of Jesus. What do we do with that? After all the disciples had witnessed up to this point, all the miracles, all the power that they themselves even performed up to this point, Yet they had not gained any insight about the loaves, but their heart was hardened. That's remarkable. But two things we need to see from the text here. One, this re-emphasizes for us that military messianic euphoria that had pervaded the feeding of the 25,000. This adds a layer of color to how truly caught up in this the disciples were. They were missing who Jesus was. 
And second, for Mark to record that their hearts were hardened. To use words that were reserved for those who were hostile to Jesus, to outsiders, took me right back to Jesus rebuking Peter. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What prompted such harsh words? Much like using words reserved for those that were opposed to Jesus and outsiders. Jesus had just told Peter and the disciples that he was going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. He was showing them truth that they're going to be, that he's going to be crucified, that he would be buried, and on the third day he would be raised to life. Peter says, Oh, no, you're not. Peter did not recognize Jesus' mission or how it would be accomplished. He was natural and carnal in his mind and his thinking. One commentator writes this quote, though Peter understood his words, he simply could not reconcile his view of the conquering Messiah with the suffering and death Jesus spoke of. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar with what the disciples just left? That's exactly what has happened here. The disciples did not see Jesus as he was. They were applying man's corrupted and fallen logic to a perfect heavenly kingdom. To not see Jesus as he is is to be a mouthpiece for those who are opposed to Jesus and all he came to do. After all that the disciples had seen, all they had witnessed and even performed by their very hand, their hearts were hardened. Yet saints, we don't sit in judgment over the disciples here. Truth is what makes a hard heart soft. To accept a lie about who Jesus is hardens a heart. To change Jesus into someone you're more comfortable with rather than the Jesus revealed in Scripture is another layer of callous that builds. Only truth penetrates a heart and turns it flesh. Everything else, no matter how noble it sounds or enticing it sounds, if it does not align with this book, it will harden you. It will take you away from the Savior and eventually into the opposition. But here today, even knowing the disciples have it wrong, even knowing the deception that they embraced back on the shore, that had hardened their hearts, he goes to them. And he doesn't pass by them on the water. He gets into the boat with them. And Scripture tells us why. Because they're his. And he will not lose a single one given to him by the Father. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are yours today. Lord, it is our cup and it overflows. We thank you for what you've shown us today. Lord, that despite the disciples being blind and not seen, being sheep as we always are, that you went to them, that you saw them, and that you got into the boat with them. Lord, we ask that you would bury this scene deep into our hearts, that we might draw on it when our seas grow rough. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.